Okay, off we go here. July the 20th, 2014, lecture discussion number 161 on the book of Romans. And uh, before I get started into that, uh, the world events, events just continue to march us. This world that we are watching around us towards Ezekiel 38, it's astonishing. First thing you got to know is that Ezekiel 38 could never have happened until now. Actually, 1948. I needed a Russia. I needed a nation of Israel. And I have both now. Uh, it's also, I have, we have, uh, not I have, but the world has a nation of Assyria. The nation has, or the world has all kinds of things that had disappeared. Assyria disappeared, Israel disappeared, and Russia was simply a, a nomadic forces until they consolidated and became an empire uh, within the last thousand years. And now they're an extraordinary, powerful military. So what we have going on right now, as you know, heavy fighting. If you didn't watch the news today, heavy fighting now in the Gaza Strip. Hamas is launching hundreds of missiles at Israel, and Israel is retaliating with airstrikes and their, their extraordinary technology. The Israeli technology, their Iron Dome, is amazing. We don't get to see things like that very often. They're inter- intercepting an extraordinary percentage of Hamas missiles. And that's the equivalency of a, if I fire a bullet at somebody and that somebody fires a bullet and knocks my bullet out of the air. It's amazing what they're doing with that Iron Dome. And they're, they feel very safe with their Iron Dome. They're, they're able to determine which Hamas missile will, they need to take out of the air. The rest of them, they can determine where they're, where they're going to land. If they're not going to hit anything, they don't go after them. They save their bullets, so to speak. It's extraordinary and exceptional thinking. And the Bible predicts, by the way, that towards the end of the age of the Gentiles, the Israelis will feel very secure behind their fence system, their security system. And that's happening. So Hamas, however, has thousands, many thousands of warheads and and delivery mechanisms. And they have an attrition strategy, in my view. And I always ask, what's the objective? The Prime Minister of Israel said succinctly uh, the other day, Israel is utilizing its missiles to shield its people, and Hamas is shielding its missiles with its people. And so Hamas clearly has a plan. It's going to accept civilian casualties for political advantage. Uh, and why are, what's their objective? I want to know. And I haven't completely resolved that in my own mind. I know Ezekiel 38 tells me that uh, there is a hook. In any event, Russia is simultaneously moving very aggressively in the Ukraine. And the other day, of course, the Russian insurgency that is run by Moscow shot down. Commercial jetliner killed everybody on it. So they are intending to be very violent to establish or reestablish control over the Soviet territories. They want the eastern Ukraine. So I, we need to ask why. What is the ultimate objective to that? What advantage is achieved? Uh, I don't think that you can um, ascribe it to purely imperialistic motives. I don't think that accomplishes what they're doing. They just It's too simplistic. The Russian communists have always had, those of us who are old enough to remember, they always had, you know, five-year plans, 20-year plans, 50-year plans. They always have had these plans. And 
they stay focused and they maintain the, uh, they, they're patient. And they have a long-term plan here, Russia does. And the Russian communists uh, are locked into it. I've said quite a bit, Russia is not interested in going west. And that's their customers. They supply natural gas to the eastern, or to all of Europe, essentially. They want eastern Ukraine. They wanted the Crimean Peninsula for the naval opportunity. They're not going to go west. They're going to go south towards Israel. But what makes them do it? That's a Bible prophecy. Uh, Ezekiel 38 says they will do it. What are they after? What hooks them? And just as an afterthought, is Hamas acting on behalf of Iran at the bidding of Russia? Uh, Ezekiel 38 says yes. Says it is. So what Hamas is doing is of great benefit to Russia. As Russia sweeps through the eastern Ukraine, Hamas creates a uh, diversion, if you will, another front. And again, only since 1948 could I have Ezekiel 38 at this powerfully in front of us. I found it interesting in, uh, um, in the last presidential election, 2012, that we had the candidates disagreeing. One declared uh, Russia to be the greatest geopolitical threat in the world, and that candidate was absolutely correct with respect to Ezekiel 38. The other mocked him and uh, said, uh, open derision. In the past few years, every group that hates Israel is increasing in strength, and that's not a surprise. That's not a coincidence. That is a very exciting turn of events. What does that mean to us? Again, to repeat, that means it's wrapping up. We get to see. There's a sin of hating Israel, the Bible says. Genesis 12.3, Matthew 25.41. And now you watch what's going on in Paris and in London. Tremendous protesting and upheaval. Outright, open, anti-Semitic hatred. It's gathering. Eventually, the Bible says it reaches all throughout the world, and Israel will be alone. That's the plan. That's God's intention. Israel will learn that no one supports them. They know that pretty much now. But it'll be driven home for them, except for Jesus Christ. He is the one that will defend them and fight on their behalf. He is the God of Israel. He is the I Am. He's the King. He's the creator of all things. He returns, but he returns with a sword in his hand. That's why we're studying Joshua 6 today and and all throughout the coming weeks. He's coming as judge. And that's not a good day for those who always seek to exterminate the Jews. And one more thing before I get us back to our topic today. It's always of value to identify the proponents of the eugenics movement. Those who advocate for the destruction of the defective, whom they describe as such. We'll call uh, them useless, defective, uh, all kinds of things. Ultimately, that's who. Eventually, that's all of us because we all become defenseless. We all become the so it's the very old and the very young, the weak, the so-called less intelligent, 
the deformed, all of those will become eventual victims and targets of the eugenicists. Eugenic philosophy is characterized by its lethality and its elitism. It is a culture of death, it is evil, it is pure wicked, and so it's important for you to find out and identify who are the ones that seek to exterminate the weak. Who are they? Who do they support? Who supports them? And then ask the obvious questions. How does someone end up thinking like this? How does someone think, I'm going to make the decision to destroy the defenseless? That's who I want to be. I want the job of killing the weak. Who thinks like that? Where does that mindset come from? How does it arise? What's its origin? Why does someone think that way? What's the motive? How can someone become so dark as to advocate for eugenics, to rationalize the extermination of the least, of the innocent? Who conceived it? And I I believe uh, the origin is obvious. It's lies and murder, liar and murderer from the beginning. And that's his system. It's what he's doing. Okay, one more thing before we return to Joshua 2 and Joshua 6. Zephaniah 2.4 tells us that the Gaza Strip will be forsaken. Zephaniah says that the land of the Philistines will have no inhabitants. That's God speaking through Zephaniah. And that that event, the Philistines having, or I'm sorry, the land of the Philistines. And what do we, by the way, what do we call the Philistines today? We call them the Palestinians. It's a Roman word for Philistine. There will be no inhabitants in the land of the Philistines. And the time that there is no inhabitants will come after. It comes after Israel has been regathered. Israel regathered completely, 1948. And, and, the land of the Philistines being uninhabited comes before the day of the Lord, which is a tribulational reference. So you can take Zephaniah 2.4 and say it's going to happen after the regathering of Israel and it's going to happen before the tribulation. To repeat the purposes of the tribulation, I, I put them into four. Sometimes I put them into three. I combine one, but I'll put them into four today. Number one reason we have the tribulation, God's purpose for it, is to end the wickedness for an age. So he will end the wickedness for an age. And the second reason is he's going to put an end to the wicked ones. Uh, That's the Antichrist and the false prophet. Uh, He's going to extend salvation to the earth. That's what his tribulation does. It's a merciful worldwide extension of grace. He turns the hearts of the stiff-necked, stubborn people, that's Israel, towards the truth of the person of Jesus Christ. The Jews figure out during the tribulation that Jesus Christ is God himself. The King of all, the Messiah, the God-man. So those are the four purposes. And Zephaniah is declaring that God will defend his nation of Israel. The Philistines will not prevail in Gaza. It is hopeless for them. Hamas and Iran are opposing the will of the Creator God. Not a good place to find yourself. 
Thankfully, the Creator is long-suffering. He waits for repentance. Whosoever will come, he accepts. But he's the creator of time. That, by the way, is an important thing to understand. Time has a created, has a creation element to it. It has a beginning. He does not. We ask questions in, in physics. What's time made out of? Is time particle based? Um, time is created though nonetheless, and he has a time, the creator does of time, when he ends the wickedness of the exterminators. And he calls that the day of the Lord, the tribulation. And we find the tribulation given to us all throughout the Old Testament, prefigured also, uh, if you want to think of it, in, it's in portraits. We can find pictures of the tribulation, dim, small um, uh, types and Joshua 2 and Joshua 6 are the examples we're going to use today. So let's kind of recap a little bit where we were. John, Joshua 6 is the destruction of Jericho. So that's where we are. And one of the significant pieces in the story of the destruction of Jericho is the true token. Rahab negotiates for a true token. She wants a true token that will ensure her salvation and um, uh, the salvation of her family. Now, I, I said the true token it really is exactly the same thing as the crimson. Did you notice, by the way, that they had the crimson worm of Jonah? Did you notice that the, uh, the Al-Qaeda army that is sweeping through Babylon right now decided to desecrate the tomb of Jonah? Because Jonah is very, very important to the Assyrians. He came and delivered the truth, and the whole city of Nineveh repented. And he's revered. But they decided to desecrate the tomb of Jonah. Just in case you missed that part. Uh, but the crimson worm that attaches itself and bleeds out red and uh, gives life to its young attaches itself to worm. Uh, I'm sorry, to wood is a picture of Christ. Uh, the true token is a picture of the crimson worm is also a picture of Christ. Uh, Psalm 22, 6, uh, where Christ says, I am the worm of Jonah. Uh, the crimson cord that uh, is essentially what Rahab uh, lets out of her house. The goat for Azazel. If you remember Yom Kippur, the sacrificial system, we have two goats. One is uh, has a scarlet cord around it, same word. All that uh, is the same and is set free into the wilderness as evidence for the person who is Azazel. Azazel is a name for Satan, uh, if you know that. So all of those things um, fit together under true token. Now, Christ himself, uh, if you weren't here, and many of you weren't, you were out fishing, good for you. He comes to Joshua and he has a sword in his hand. And that's very significant. So Jesus Christ has come. The angel of the Lord has come. God himself has come. And he has the sword of God. And, and, he, and he is there at the battle of Jericho. Um, and the sword of God, if I was going to say to you, what is another name for the sword of God, what would you say to me? What's that? Word. Word and sword are interchangeable. So immediately, whenever you consider or come across Jesus Christ with a sword in his hand, sword drawn, as we do in Joshua 
You've got to make the connection to what? The sword is word. Christ has a sword. He's got his sword in his hand. What's he going to do with it? What's the reason he has the sword in his hand? He's going to, let's lay it out for you. He's going to kill people. Why is he going to kill them? Is he bad? No, he's always good. He's going to stop them, isn't he? But he has a sword in his hand. Sword drawn. So you make the connection to 1921 of the book of Revelation. The destruction of the armies of the Antichrist. Revelation 19.21 says this, And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. So out of the mouth, if you will, of Christ comes the word of Christ, which is the sword of Christ, and it kills the armies of the Antichrist. He is here in Joshua 5.13 with that sword, so I now have this picture of what he's going to do with it in Joshua 5.13. I have a connection, uh, for lack of a better word, between Joshua 5.13 and Revelation 19.21. So I have a prefiguring, a portrait, a foreshadowing of the tribulation in Joshua 5 and 6, the destruction of Jericho. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says this, For the word of God is living. Oh, my goodness, that's a tremendous verse right there. The word of Christ is living. He's life. He's the only life there is. We don't have life unless he gives it to us. And right now we have death. Some of us are decaying faster than others. Some of us have 300 pounds of 400 pounds of speaker system directly above their head. And at any second, I just want the Internet audience to know that I am once again risking my life. Or my so-called life, I guess. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and powerful. Or if you want, omnipotent. So the word of God is life and omnipotent. And that describes Christ as one of his names. He is the word of God and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. And we know that we have a spiritual component. And somehow this, even though it's so interconnected, there's... Um, there's some way to divide it. Who can divide what is soul and what is spirit? Only Christ can do that. And he can also divide the joints and the marrow. And he is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him. So he sees everything, he knows everything, and he is has all the power. All three are there. All three, omniscience, omnipresence, and uh, omnipotence are all in Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So he sees all creatures, but we must give an accounting. So... That's an extraordinary uh, uh, passage, those two verses. Um, maybe next week I can tear into it a little deeper than what we're going to do today, which is now leave it behind. Two passages, though, Revelation 19.21 and Hebrews 4.12-13 that explained what happened at Jericho when Christ came with his sword drawn. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ came to end the wickedness at Jericho. That's what's going on. He has come to separate the souls 
from the bones. That's what he's going to do. That's why his sword is out. And he does it in Revelation 19.21 by just speaking, doesn't he? And everything separates. Now, obviously, it's going to be productive to compile everywhere in Scripture where God deems it necessary to personally come with a sword. Now, last Sunday, I brought up quite a few questions. If you weren't here, we we read a few passages in Jericho 2 and Jericho 6, and we noticed something interesting, that they're called spies in Jericho 2, but they're called messengers in Jericho 6. And I have two messengers. And I asked the question, why don't I have 12 spies? I had 12 spies when Moses sent the spies into Canaan. But now when Joshua sends them into Canaan, there's only two. And Joshua calls them spies, but he also calls them messengers. And I asked, what message do they have? Why would he call them messengers? What's their message? Who is their message for? Is it for Israel? Do they go into Canaan and come back with a message for Israel? I don't think you can defend that. They have a message for Jericho. What's their message to Jericho? And there's two of them. So what am I going to do? How am I going to solve what their message is? I asked you that last week, and and I hope you figured that out. Some of you are making it obvious you have figured it out, and good for you. So all I got to do is, well, all I got to do is, where else in Scripture does, you see, here, let me put, let me put Joshua's name in Hebrew for you. Yeshua. It's identical to the name Jesus. So where else in Scripture does Jesus send two messengers? He does do it in Sodom and Gomorrah. Very impressive answer. Everybody else said what, though? But you're right. You're absolutely right. Yes, he does it in Revelation, at the tribulation. He sends two witnesses. See, they did it too. They went to Sodom and Gomorrah. They were delivering a message because the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, I'll get ahead of myself, is identical to the destruction of Jericho and both prefigure the tribulational period in Revelation. Does that make sense? So very good answer for your first time ever here. (laughs) Okay, it's the first time ever here for your husband. No, that's not true either. He did come a couple of times while you were gone. He did. He did. And I've been waiting for you, so never mind. Where else in Scripture does Yeshua, does Jesus Christ send two messengers? And obviously, uh, let me say it for the Internet folks, instead, where else in Scripture does Jesus Christ send two witnesses? And obviously, again, that's Revelation 11. And now we can deduce that the message of the two witnesses has to be what? Has to be identical to the message of the two witnesses, or the message of the two messengers, if that makes sense to you. And I want to stop right here for a moment to point out that I answered a question. People tell me I don't answer questions, and I did. How many of you, though, didn't need the question answered? You figured it out last week or in the interim. You are very wise not to raise your hands here. Very wise. All of that was for those who say I never answer a question. I also ask, why only two spies instead of twelve spies? Well, again, because we're supposed to have two witnesses. We're supposed to tie you to Sodom and Gomorrah and tie you to Revelation 6. 
God knew that. He's the author of the book. Now the real question is, why does God have this uh, two or three witnesses provision in his word? Why does he do it that way? Why not five witnesses? Why not seven witnesses? But he says two or three. Deuteronomy 17.6. Whoever is deserving of death. Why is this verse applicable to a discussion on Jericho? Because obviously Jericho is deserving of death. Now, we're all deserving of death, but Christ is coming with his sword here. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Did Jericho get its two witnesses? Did. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. You shall put away the evil. Essentially on the testimony of two witnesses. That's what's happening in Jericho. And as you know, I've done a lot of sermons on the evil. And I can never do enough. Again, I need to spend more time on the evil. But um, You can compare what Jesus says at John 17.15 to Deuteronomy 17.6 and meld it all into Jericho at Joshua 6. Christ says this in John 17:15. I pray not that you should take them out of the world. So he is having a audible conversation with who? With God, I have God the Son and God the Father. God the Son is talking aloud to God the Father. Does he need to do that? No. Do they know each other's thoughts? Yes. It's the triune Godhead. They're one and the same. So when he is talking aloud, who is it for? That's right, all of the stupid people. That would be us. So that he can explain what he's trying to say, or so that you will under, or explain what he's trying to do, because he has to teach us at every time. We are in remedial educational system. We don't get nothing. I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them away from the evil. <coughs> So that's God himself saying, I pray that we keep my apostles from the evil. Some will translate it the evil thing, because Christ is called in Luke 2 the holy thing, and so we have the Antichrist called the evil thing. So he has to keep them away from the evil thing. question becomes one of the great questions of Scripture that leads you all over the place. Who is the evil thing? Who is the evil? Anyway, hopefully it is now apparent that Joshua 2, 5, and 6 is about the city of Jericho's time of accounting. Christ is coming. God is coming with his sword. He's going to separate them. That's what death ultimately is, is separation from the uh, non-physical from the physical. And it is a portrait of the tribulation. God has come. He is ending the wicked ones and their wickedness. He has sent his two messengers. Rahab the harlot hides the two messengers and lies to the king of Jericho who seeks to kill the two messengers. So ask yourself, where in the tribulation, who is hiding the two messengers and who is seeking to kill the two messengers? And you now begin to see the foreshadowing come to the forefront. Okay, so let's recap the questions from last Sunday, lecture number 160, for those who are following along on the vast Internet audience.
What was the message of the two messengers? What did they come to do? What did they witness? He tells them, Joshua says, go out and spy in the land, but especially Jericho. Something's going on at Jericho. Go find out. There's an accursed thing in Jericho. If you were here last week, we began to bring up what is the accursed thing. We're not to, no one of Israel is to touch the accursed thing or the dedicated thing. What was Jericho doing? How long have they been doing it? What is going on there? How long has it been going on? And then we asked, what did the people shout when the trumpets were blown and the marching was around? And why this utter destruction? Because God says, destroy all of it, including the animals. Take the gold and the silver, destroy everything else. Why is it that the gold and the silver was recovered? Why not destroy the gold and the silver? What's that? Well, that's correct. He said it can't be contaminated. It also probably never belonged to Jericho until they stole it. Who did it belong to? What was he going to do with the gold and silver? Why does God need gold and silver? He only needs it as silver, as symbols. Because gold is a symbol of what? Deity. That's why they brought frankincense, right? Which is, uh, which is a incense that is burned uh, as a sacrifice. They brought embalming fluid and they brought gold because he is the sweet savor of the sacrifice Christ is. He is deity. He's God himself. He hidden inside of an infant, though still completely and totally God, and that he was going to sacrifice himself and that's the purpose of the death, uh, not embalming fluid so much as a perfume. So, what did the people shout? Why this utter destruction? Kill the animals. Why? And why was it that only Rahab, I didn't put her name up here, got to do that. Why was it that only Rahab negotiated a deal? That is, I brought up the Gibeonites. The, the Gibeonites watched this and said, we're negotiating. I love the Gibeonites. As you know, I've done many lectures on the Gibeonites, what happened to the Gibeonites. Uh, I think the Gibeonites still exist. We just don't know. We've lost track of who they are. But they were some special, special people. They watched this and said, we're surrendering. And we got to fool the people of Israel. So they knew two things that they had to do. They knew they had to surrender to, to God. They knew Joshua, if he gave his word, would have to keep it because God keeps his word. And they knew the people of Israel were easily fooled. They had all that going for them. And they pulled it off and they are revered and honored in Scripture. It's amazing, the Gibeonites. If we could be anybody, it's the Gibeonites. But why only Rahab here at Jericho? There's great terror, there's fear, there's dread, there's hearts melting, faint-heartedness. They're actually fainting in fear. That's what that word means. Fainting because the nation of Israel is coming and they're so frightened they can't function. So why don't they surrender? Who are they surrendering to? The most merciful, long-suffering, loving fair, good 
God of creation. Why wouldn't you surrender? Why would you say, nope, I'm scared, but I'm going to stick it out? Again, for the internet audience, I, the instructions in the pregame here was, if an earthquake occurs, we all run. We don't stick it out in this building right now. We all go. Immediately. But only Rahab, with all that terror, with all that dread, she negotiates for the true token. She wants the true token to save her, to deliver her from death. She wants that which will be honored. Very similar to the Gibeonites. And and it's a given to her, and it's essentially a crimson cord. It's the same word for the scarlet or the crimson worm. It's the same word for the crimson tie for the goat for Azazel. And, And she wants that, and she hangs it out of her window. Over her window that she wove, by the way, after... After she let the the, uh, two messengers escape with that rope, she wove it into the window. So over her window was the blood cord. And I asked, uh, I think last week, how long was the rope? Because i got to know. i got to get down that wall. How tall is the wall? Here's something about the wall. The wall was big enough that it had wide enough. So if you know anything about engineering, if I'm going to build a big wall, I've got to have a wide base. And I have to have some kind of structure down here as well. But there's houses on this wall. I probably drew the house too big. In her house, she had a view, according to Scripture. I'll put it this way. She, I put it on the other way. She lets that rope down. I'm submitting to you that's a long rope, and that is a big wall. People living on top of it in houses. Why'd they make it so big? By the way, Israel did not have any system by which to attack that wall. They had no catapult system. They had no towers to put up against it and the traditional method. And apparently neither did anybody else in all of Canaan. Because those walls were standing there. And this gets back to why didn't they surrender? You know what we have in this United States? You know what they have all over? You know what they're doing in Iran, for example? They are building things very, very deep in the ground. And they're covering them with concrete. And they're very confident. And, of course, what they're building is uh, nuclear weapon systems very deep in the ground. And covered in masses amounts of reinforced concrete uh, so that they can not get themselves bombed into oblivion. Uh, and we have the same thing in this country. We have all kinds of fortresses underneath that protect the elite in case there's some kind of nuclear event or some kind of other natural catastrophe. Say the Yellowstone volcano goes, which would be cool as long as you don't live in Yellowstone or California, Wyoming, Texas, wherever else it's going to go. Alaska, you know, if that thing goes off, and they've been saying for years it's a super volcano, if it goes off, uh, Alaska will probably survive, except for the earthquakes that we have that will be caused by that. So, 
That'll be an interesting day if we're around for that. But I wanted to ask, why did the people surrender? Or why didn't they surrender? Only Rahab surrendered. Everybody else thought what? Had to. Only logical explanation. They all thought the concrete. And I don't know that it was concrete. Uh, but, uh, very likely they had some kind of stone system. The, uh, the speculation is that the pyramids were a, a liquefied, pumped-in-place form. So who knows? Technology was certainly available to them to do something extraordinary. They obviously had it, and they built these massive walls. And the people must have felt what? Safe. I'm in a wall. God can't get me. Would anybody be that dumb today? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely they will. It's exactly what they're going to do. It says so in Revelation. They hide in the mountains and they pull the lids over and they say, ah, oops. <laughs> anyway, Rahab is the only one. She has the blood cord. She's the only one. And I also ask this gate. They have a gate. And the gate is constantly, the not constantly, but repeatedly, the gate is is. Opened and shut. And it says so. Opened and shut the gate. Every time they go out, it talks about the gate being shut. The gate being open. Gate being shut. Gate being open. Well, whenever you see that kind of language in the Bible, ask yourself, why is God repeating this? What's this for? What is the gate a symbol of? What does this have to do with Samson, who tears the gate off and walks up a big mountain and throws it in the valley? But the true token is clearly Jesus Christ. Notice, once again, there is only one true token. It's not true tokens. It's singular. There's only one true token. That angers the universalists. And they'll send me nasty letters, So, but that's how it is. There's still only one true token. Now, there is many false tokens. Only one true token. Now, as we wrap it up here, which means what if you've come to Cliffside before? Yeah, 30 more minutes. That's right. Okay. Let's read. I'm kidding. Somebody calm the visitor down. Amanda. Okay. Let's read the portrait of the destruction of Jericho. The components. The uh, And make another list. Because we love to make our lists. I forgot to bring that. Adina gave me my next door neighbor's. Adira, good grief, I'm getting old. Adina sent me something that's just brilliantly funny, and I forgot it. It's Lori's fault. Let's read Joshua 6, 1 through 10. Now, Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, and none came in. What What have we shut? The gate. And the Lord said to Joshua, See! It's shut up. The gate's shut. And that's therefore what? Proof. The fact that the gate is shut is proof. See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king, and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you, all the men of war. You shall go around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Testimony, or the Ark of the Covenant. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, 
And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat. Which wall, I asked previously? Which direction does it fall? Fall in or fall out? That's why having an idea how big it is is pretty significant. And the people shall go up every man straight before him. Then Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the, the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets, how many times did he repeat that? See, obviously we got to figure out why that's important. Because it is, whenever I see God do that over and over and over again, I always think the same thing. I am an idiot, and I have to figure out why this is being repeated for my benefit. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests and blew the trumpets. And the rear guard came after the ark, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shout. That's the instructions. That's the battle plan. First God says, See? Gates shut. That means they're done for. It's over. Here's what I want you to do. Walking around, blowing horns. Don't bother to bring any towers. Don't bother to be bring any battering rams. Don't try to rope ladder your way up there. Just walk around. Blow trumpets. Every church apparently needs trumpets. Make a note. But I want you to, let's just really quickly go through this list. See if I can get it on over here so you can see it. Starts out with, none went in, none came out. None, none. See? Some kind of proof. How is that none-none proof? The king is done for. And also, the mighty men of renown, valor. Genesis 6. They're also done for. Did I go too fast there? Because i got to figure out who these mighty men are. So what do I do? I run around the Bible and I find what? All the other mighty men that are wicked. That God takes up. Where do I go? Genesis 6. I need to know who they are. Somebody built this thing. Who built it? How big was it? And they were, they were absolutely confident. You know, you're not getting in here. We shut the gate. 
You don't need to leave. You don't need to surrender. We've got it handled. That's exactly like who? Revelation 19.21. You're going to win. All we're going against is who? God with a sword. No problem. We got this. I know. It's insanity. It's a mental disorder. It's inexplicable. So here's the next plan, though. We're going to march around the city. March around the city. All the troops. How long did that take, by the way? How many troops I got? I got hundreds of thousands. We're walk around that city. That was one long parade. And we're going we're to walk around one time for six days. And then on the seventh, whoops, E-F, on the seventh day, Things are going to change. But before that, I, I left out the seven priests with the seven ram's horn and the Ark of the Testimony. So in there, I got seven priests and I got the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant. Seven priests and the seven horns, ram's horns. I got trumpets. On the seventh day, I'm going to march seven times, and the priests are going to blow trumpets. Where else in the Bible do I have somebody blowing trumpets just before things are blowed up? That should be obvious again, right? Hopefully you can see this is clearly prefiguring it as a portrait, it is a shadow of the book of Revelation, the tribulation. And then there's going to be a long blast with the ram's horn. You're going to hear, the people are going to hear the trumpet, then there's going to be a shout. Or else in the Bible do I have somebody shouting? And then the wall will fall and you rush in. The first question should be, why seven years of tribulation, right? Why not in the wickedness in one day? That's the same question that I'm asking here. Why did you walk around seven times? Why do you have seven years of tribulation? Why do you have seven years of tribulation? I started out with that. Why do you have seven years of tribulation? Four reasons. What are they again? I'm going to put an end to the wicked ones. Who's the wicked ones in this story? The wicked ones are the king and the mighty men of valor that are in there. I get rid of the wicked ones. I'm going to end the wickedness. What's the wickedness? We have to decide what the wickedness is. There's some amazing... Not amazing, bad word. Un, unfathomable wickedness going on inside of Jericho, and he's going to put an end to it. And then, of course, there is revival. He's extending the hand of salvation. Why does he wait seven years before he ends the wickedness? Why does he march around seven times before he blows the trumpet and shouts and knocks the wall down? Because obviously he intends for some people to do what? Gives them an opportunity to surrender, doesn't he? And if they surrender, he's, he's taken them. You surrender, he takes you. Rahab is in the Messianic line. She is a prostitute inside of Jericho. She, Boaz, ultimately comes through Rahab. 
So that's the same question. I'll rephrase it just in case I confuse people. Why march around for seven days, blowing trumpets? Same question as why seven years of the, tri- of the tribulation. Because in the tribulation, I'm blowing trumpets also. I'm pouring bowls. I'm opening the scroll. I'm breaking seals. One of the purposes of the tribulation is to reach down to save those who are going to leave. Those who say, these walls aren't going to stop him. Are you kidding me? i got no chance in my little bunker. Doomsday preppers is not going to work. This is God. So the same as Jericho. I ask this question all the time when I do this Jericho segment. How many people left before they shut the gates? If you're in Jericho, the gates are open. You know pretty soon, though, what's going to happen. It's going to lock those gates. Are you leaving or not? Do you believe the king and the mighty men that their, their, their wall is going to hold up? So far, so good. You see a bunch of guys that can't, they can't scale the wall. Oh, the plan is to walk around and blow horns. How are we feeling? So far, so good. That's God out there. How many left Jericho before we got to none, none? Before the gates were shut and none came in and none went out? Anybody take off and run for it? Because the messengers got in, didn't they? And the messengers got out. They got out with the blood rope. Anybody else get out before the gates shut? In which case, how many? There does come a time that none come in and none go out. And when that happens, that's when it's coming to an end. You see, it's over now. When none can come in and none can go out, then it's over. What is the equivalent in the tribulation for the gate being shut? That's where we'll head next week. Those are solemn words. None come in, none go out. Everyone is fixed in their decision and everyone is stuck in their place. And when that is the case, Jericho is doomed. It's utterly destroyed. The time comes and whatever was very wrong in Jericho... Joshua pronounces a curse on it. He says, cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho, again. This is cursed. You don't do what they did here. Joshua burns the city completely and totally consumes all of it. All the people, all the animals, burn them all up. By the way, does God use fire to purify? Yes, he does. The lake of fire is what? It's an easy question. It's a lake of fire. It's absolutely prefigured right here in Jericho, or Joshua 6, 26. Again, how did they build such huge walls that had houses on them? Who were these mighty men? Why would anyone choose to live in a place that God would completely burn because he sees it as great wickedness? Do we have people living in places today that are filled to the brim with great wickedness and they won't leave? Is God going to end it? He's going to end it. And, and Lot was dragged out of Sodom, as Kathy pointed out. And um, Rahab was saved from one just the same as Sodom. So ultimately, next week, we have to compare Sodom and Jericho. And that's what we'll do very quickly, I promise. Let's rise, be dismissed. Let the musicians come forward with their trumpets marching seven times. And we'll get out of here. Actually, we won't because we have brisket and, and a fish.